Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss Victor Sjöström's seminal film, The Phantom Carriage. Nobel Prize-winning novelist Selma Lagerlöf's 1912 novel, Korkarlin, was adapted to the screen by Swedish pioneer Victor Sjöström in 1921. Literally translated into English as The Coachman, Sjöström's motion picture depicts the story of a fateful New Year's Eve as our protagonist, David Holm, played by Sjöström himself, dies at the stroke of midnight to inherit the role of Death's charioteer for the New Year. Meanwhile, unaware of David's death, a dying Salvation Army sister, Edith, played by Astrid Holm, calls upon her friends to find David so she can see him prior to her own passing. As David is made aware of his new role by the previous year's driver, Georges, enacted by Torres Venberg, complete with cloak and scythe, we visit the past sins of David at a manner not dissimilar to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. A landmark in silent cinema, The Phantom Carriage is equal parts ghost story, folklore, moral fable, and cautionary tale. Orchestrated in a non-linear structure, the film is one of the earliest accomplishments in advancing cinematic narrative structure. Utilizing innovative special effects and rich production design on the then-recently-built sets of new studio Zvensk Film Industry, Sjöström and his compatriots produced a movie that changed the future of cinema due not only to its own accomplishments, but also its notable influence on filmmaker Ingmar Bergman. Released by the Criterion Collection on DVD and Blu-ray in 2011, The Phantom Carriage is treated to a new digital restoration and an option of two different scores to accompanying viewings of it. Join Matt and me as we ride along with The Phantom Carriage just in time for Halloween. Well, Matt, as I was thinking of a movie to pick for this particular podcast, I occurred to me since our very first episode, we hadn't done a single silent film. The other silent film we've talked about is The Passion of Joan of Arc, which we kicked off with. So I thought, well, maybe it's time to go back to those gems from the silent era and talk a little bit more about them and get that as a part of our uh, repertoire here. Uh, I saw this movie for the first time about a year ago, and I liked it. I don't know that I would say I was blown away by it, but I liked it. Watching it again, I've come to appreciate it even more. Uh, and so I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on it, having seen it now. Yeah, this is the first time I've watched this. I mean, of course, I heard of it uh, quite a while ago and, and knew that Criterion put it out uh, a few years ago, but just didn't get a chance to to see it. So a very striking film. I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, th- I can see this really kind of bearing more fruit with, with repeat viewings. Um, the fact that this is kind of labeled a, a horror film, it's kind of a misnomer to me. I mean, it's really more of a morality tale and the supernatural elements are, I felt very secondary to what is pretty much, uh, I wouldn't call it a straightforward story, but it's, it's very much a domestic drama in many ways. And I think that's maybe a better way to characterize it. Uh, but just overall, I, visually, I thought it was beautiful. The the lighting in this film is spectacular, and you know, I think about when this is made and how young cinema was at the time, and uh, pretty sophisticated film visually. 
and your your intro also alluded to uh, to how the film is unique structurally uh, using flashbacks within flashbacks. So I guess just overall impressions, strong film. Uh, looking forward to checking it out again in the future and, and, and seeing how it holds up. One of the things that's impressive to me about this is there's obviously, as you mentioned, you know, some real beautiful camera work, some great sets, uh, but also there's a real clear sense of vision in terms of not just, oh, here's the story I want to tell by Sjostrom, but a vision in terms of where he wants to take cinema. As you mentioned, it's the infancy of cinema, right? So the silent era was a time where movies were still finding their feet. Not a lot was uh, explored yet. And obviously by the time we got really with D.W. Griffith in 1915, with The Birth of a Nation, and then thereon, a real sort of explosion of creativity in the 1920s, all throughout the world, not just in America, but throughout the world, there was these thriving but very infant uh, film industries that had emerged. And you see with Sjostrom here, I think, a true understanding of how he wanted movies to work, about how he wanted to maybe take this new way of telling stories forward. Uh, there's obviously the the notable innovations that are done with uh, the special effects, not the fact that there's double exposure going on, because that had been done before him, but the, actually, it's not even really correct to say double exposure because in some cases they maybe exposed the film three, four, five times uh, to be able to get the effects they were going for. Uh, but also, like you said, with vision uh, or with uh, lighting, with the way in which the lighting was used uh, to create effects, the way in which he composed shots, uh, the way in which he emphasized the human face, uh, the way in which he allowed darkness to play as part of the framing devices here. There's just a real sense of a voice uh, in this particular movie, which is exciting to see. It's not by any means, I think, a perfectly clear voice, because yeah. perhaps in some ways, they just nobody had really mastered cinema enough yet to really have a full grasp of its potential. But you really see the exploration of it. And honestly, if, if sound hadn't come along, you know, about seven years later, uh, these cinematic techniques would have kept growing in terms of the visual piece. I'm not by any means trying to say that silent cinema is more pure than with sound. I don't think that's true. But you can see that there was an incredible outbreak of creativity right at the start of the 20s. And uh, here you see it in a particularly uh, wonderful and very distinctive style uh, that comes from Sjostrom. Yeah, I always think about... Um... You know, Passion of Joan of Arc. I mean, going back to to that film, of course, and just how uh, the camera is is so liberated in that film, and and it must have been a liberating thing to work in silent cinema. Just the fact that you wouldn't have to be limited by um, by sound equipment and having to worry about uh, recording dialogue. So it really promotes the the visual aspect uh, to its utmost, and and. Uh, I always think about people making films at this time and, and how much of a novelty, you know, thing it must've felt like, you know, that they were really exploring this new art form, this new medium and, and really discovering things as they went along. But much like Passion of Joan of Arc, you know, I look at this film and and as you said, there, there is a sense of maturity here and a a sense of vision. Uh, The camera isn't particularly flashy in this film, which I think a lot of it, is a uh, a consequence of the visual effects and the fact that the camera did have to be locked down and 
and cranked at the exact same speed for each each of the elements for the multiple exposures to make it work. So it does kind of limit the camera movement to a point. But I don't think this film really needs uh, any flashy camera moves. It is very much uh, an intimate film in terms of the scenes and the locations and a lot of interiors and a lot of sets. And uh, we're very much presented with kind of the proscenium and, and it does feel theatrical at times and that's fine. It serves the, serves the film well, especially with some of the more supernatural elements. Uh, but I have to go back to the lighting again. I just, the, the complexity of the lighting in this film, I think is, is definitely something worth mentioning. Again, you look at the, the deep focus and, and just the layers of characters in a lot of scenes, especially uh, the scenes in, in, uh, the bar early on and the Salvation Army meeting later. If you really look at uh, all the lighting in those scenes and, and how many secondary characters are, are very meticulously lit, even in the background, uh, they must have had some impressive lighting setups for a lot of these sequences. And some are very simply lit, too, from one light source or you know if it's emulating a, a candlelight. So not every scene is, is complex in that regard, but uh, it was impressive. And uh, I do wonder who was behind the, the lighting in this film. I'm not sure we can dig that up in the, in the credits, but it's uh, kudos to them because it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I mean, obviously, I don't think you had anywhere near as elaborate of a production crew uh, in those days as you do now. So I wouldn't be at all yeah. surprised if the cinematographer, uh, Julius Jensen, is the one that was chiefly responsible for doing the lighting. Uh, I, I can say what, a few thoughts on the lighting that make it so noteworthy, uh, not just the deep focus aspect, but also the way in which they affected the lighting on the ghost figures that mm-hmm. emerge. It's not just like they're a superimposed image that you kind of kind of seeing through. It, they really do by the way they're lit, and they have a kind of glow that allows them to have a supernatural quality to them. That also gives them a sense of belonging in the other images, right? They are somewhat different, but they feel like they do belong there. And of course, that's partly because they took time, and it's not always executed perfectly. But they did take time to have it so that the carriage and the driver could pass you know between things so there is something still in the foreground so you really have that sense hey it's walk it's he's walking behind something and in front of something else so they had a wonderful way in which they accomplished that but also what they did with lighting i think that's really impressive and it's also partly from tinting the film but it's not just that uh how they lit scenes really helps you understand what time of day it is there's a lot of interiors here and without sound you have to rely entirely on the visual image to convey to the audience what time of day this is taking place at. Some of the times it's done very obviously. You know, If they're outside at night, it's going to be a blue tint. And so you get the sense of a really okay, clear, dark, dark night. But if you're inside, it's not as easy. And so they had this way in which through the lighting of the sets, you could tell that they're really making it clear that this is a nighttime scene versus a daytime scene. And there's only a few scenes in here that do take place during the day. But mm-hmm. a really neat and wonderful way in which we are given an understanding as the audience of what is going on and when this is taking place, how things are relating, and how important that is, particularly considering the structure, right? That you have flashbacks and we're able to keep everything pretty clear through the use of lighting, 
uh, as, a, as a visual means of telling us what's happening and when it's happening in relation to other things we've seen. So real, real impressive on that front. Uh, another point, uh, Matt, and maybe this is just a, you know, just a point that gets missed a lot on silent films, is the importance of intertitles. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you paid much attention to it or thought much about it. Uh, obviously, there's sometimes spoofs that are done about intertitles in uh, silent movies, but this one uses them very sparingly, and they don't introduce, oh, here's who this character is. You know, now a new character has emerged. Usually an intertitle would come up and tell you who this person is. Mm-hmm. And so it creates that sense of mystery in this movie. You know, uh, the structure and the use of intertitles really do draw the audience in, I think, deeper. and They require us to pay more attention uh, so that we really kind of understand the thematic purpose of this. It's not revealed to us all at once. Uh, it really has a mystery within it. And I really th- thought the use of intertitles, or more to the point, the lack of a use of intertitles in some places, uh, makes a, a huge difference in how we appreciate the movie. Do you have any thoughts about that or just about intertitles in general? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. You know, Schostrom, I think it's another example of him really being ahead of his time, but also being um, respectful of his audience's intelligence. I mean, I think he probably felt that he didn't really have to explain everything or maybe he saw the value of, of showing and not telling uh, even at this early point in, in cinema. Uh, but you're right, the, the intertitles are mostly for dialogue, right? I mean, there's very few, you could call them narration intertitles or, or set-up intertitles to explain characters or situations. And when they are there, uh, they're actually quite poetic and and they add something to the uh, the material beyond just explaining what's going on. Uh, so I, I appreciated that. But you're right. I mean, they can be, uh, much like voiceover in, in modern films, they can be used as a crutch uh, or a means of exposition uh, where, you know, uh, back to the phrase show, don't tell. So uh, ideally a film is conveying things either visually or through characters and situations versus exposition. Uh, so it's refreshing to see uh, a film even of this time uh, take that approach and and really, again, respect the, the audience's attention and intelligence. And it uh, really draws you in and it makes you focus on the details. And and even beyond that, the, uh, the film structurally is challenging. And I, I think... I mean, not to us today, I guess we're used to flashbacks and used to these mechanisms uh, at work. But I do wonder if audiences at the time would have been confused by this film uh, in terms of not only its, um, its structural choices, but maybe maybe the lack of explanation in the titles was confusing to some people. Hopefully not. I mean, I think the, the film is pretty clear and the situations are pretty clear. And, and Showstrom's performance as David Holm is... Uh, pretty riveting, so I I think the themes and the messages are evident. But again, it's hard to put oneself in the situation of uh, uh, a cinema goer in 1920s Sweden. You know, it's hard to know how sophisticated audiences were at the time to interpret these things. But I suspect that they did quite well because I think this film was a success. I did wonder about it. You know, how much did this? structure and the real the fact that it doesn't really 
have any clear cues to say, hey, this happened this time, this happened that time. Yeah. Uh, you have to be paying attention. How much did that impact the way audiences responded to it? Uh, but as you said, it was a success, and it, it certainly was part of the golden age of Swedish cinema in those early years. Uh, so I, I'm guessing that audiences did get into it and did understand it. But I think that's ultimately because you had a director who was confident. I mean, that's, I think, the greatest way to uh, to explain the direction of this movie. Sjöström is directing it with confidence. He has an idea of what he's doing. He believes in what he's doing. And he's not going to compromise on how he's going to do it, which is something I think when films have that, when they have a director that actually is convinced of his material and believes in it, it has a way of just drawing an audience into it. Uh, Sometimes the director's confidence might be overstated. That certainly has happened. But even then, you still sort of are along for the ride, even if it doesn't go as well as it should. Uh, Here you happen to have a very talented filmmaker who is very confident in his storytelling abilities. And that again, gives me the sense as an audience of a feeling of respect, but it also, I think, then encourages me to pay more attention because I have to piece things together. It's not being done for me, which then really allows me to experience the movie as it's being played out, right? To really experience these performances. Uh, and as silent film performances go, I think they're quite good. I think they're, they're not too theatrical, there is some theatricality. There has to be. But I think that they actually hold up pretty well all these years removed. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I, I didn't realize right away that David Holm was played by the writer-director. So and the guy's a very talented actor on top of it. And he, he's a bad dude, I'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, there's there's uh, no punches pulled there in terms of his level of uh, of hatred and resentment for for fellow human beings. So that's very accurately conveyed. But yeah, it never becomes comedically over the top, or uh, you know, some of the fight scenes always look a little goofy in silent films just because of the frame rate more than anything. Uh, but I, I definitely bought into the whole situation and and the performances were appropriate for the period, but like you said, they weren't um, distracting in any negative way. Well, I think action in a silent film is always hard nowadays to watch because we're so used to it with sound. So whether it's a fight scene or whether it's a big battle scene, they can be impressively staged. They can have really incredible uh, movement to them. Uh, But I think not just because of the frame rate, but because we don't hear the accompanying sounds, they just seem a little farcical. Uh, so it is hard to to kind of watch them and, and get the full grasp of what it might have been like, I think, in those early decades of cinema. Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with your assessment that David Holm is a bad man, per se. Um, so we can maybe talk about his character a little bit here, because it's obviously at the heart of the movie is this man, right? I think you, you said at the beginning, Matt, that calling it a horror film is a bit of misnomer, and I think that's true. Uh, it's if you want to call it a morality tale, that's, I think, a fair assessment. Um, it's really, I see, a, a character study, right? It's about this man and about his failings and about his redemption, right? That's ultimately the, the movement of the story is towards his redemption. Now, I always looked at, you know, you, you include that flashback to him as a, as a good man uh, with his family. They're having this picnic. And then that beautiful dissolve uh, where... Uh, the wife is replaced by a man with alcohol. 
and uh, then uh, he obviously that becomes the turning point, right? And mm-hmm. there's an element to which I could see whether it was intended or not, or whether it was uh, desired or not, that this was maybe caught up in the overall sobriety movements that were taking place in the early 20s, right? The, yeah. the temperance movements. Uh, so, because alcohol really looks like the big bad, the big bad guy here, right? Uh, but David is, I think, portrayed as a as a fundamentally good man who has been corrupted. That's my interpretation of the character. I think you see this in in several little gestures that Sjöström makes in his performance. Uh, the fact that he obviously chooses to have remorse because his brother kills a man, he continues to serve prison time in his brother's place, right? He continues uh, to. Uh, to have that sense of, I did do something wrong, I have failed my family, right? Uh, he is intended when he gets out to be a, a good husband again, and then his wife has left him, and then he becomes bitter and angry over this, and he's going to get vengeance, right? Uh, you see that decay following him and uh, continuing to grow within him, but there is a kind of a movement of good within him at all as well. Uh, the, the most disturbing scene for me was the one where he attacks the family, right? He he yeah. takes the axe and cuts his way through the door, which we could maybe talk about this a little bit in a minute, but obviously you can't help but watch that now and think of The Shining. Yeah, absolutely. When he does do it, uh, he he comes to, she, uh, his wife ha- passes out, and he revives her with a certain sort of torn sense. He obviously then moves back into torture mode, but he does revive her. He does kind of have a pause to mm-hmm. look out and try to help her in a sense. So you see this war within himself. I think that's that's what this makes this movie so interesting. It's about really a fallen person. There's a good and there's a bad. I don't know that I would so, go so far as to say he's a bad person, but I don't know if you have more thoughts on that particular point. Well, I don't want to entirely condemn him. I mean, there, he clearly has a conscience and and he's trying to um, to mend his ways. And we do see those flashbacks where, where he was uh, more of an upstanding citizen. And like you said, you could say this is, you know, a condemnation of, of alcoholism or it's looking at that as, as a, a means of a destructive means um, or just a, a force of destruction in people's lives. But I, I, I mean, I have to probably amend my own statement. I mean, it's e- always easy to label people as as good or bad and, and always to look at others and the bad choices they make is something that someone else would do and that we would never do. And, and that's probably not, not the best way to look at it. I mean, we all have the, uh, potential to do horrible things and, and that's what, um, uh, really defines us in many ways, but it's the, the choice not to do them, of course, that, that hopefully helps us transcend, uh, transcend suffering and transcend the circumstances we might find ourselves in. So at the very least, we can say that David Holm makes poor decisions on a regular basis, uh, including intentionally coughing on people to try to give them tuberculosis. So there's, I, I mean, he is certainly a product of his circumstances, but many of his circumstances are the result of his own choices. So it's hard for me to to exonerate him entirely, but to condemn him as an entirely bad man, yeah, he he does have the desire to uh, to turn his life around, and that and that comes full circle uh, at the end of the film. But I, I think the film maybe this is kind of a fault uh, in the writing or in the script. 
I, I think the film too often sends a message of, well, this person or that person is bad because of somebody else influencing them in a negative way. And that kind of bugged me, uh, almost kind of making one's personal choices secondary to the fact that they have a bad influence in their life. So the, the bartender, for instance, or the bar, the barmaid is kind of, uh, beating up on, on David because he has created, other drunks in town essentially or influence them in, in a way that uh, have uh, gotten them far down the road of alcoholism. And there's very little uh, condemnation of the individual in terms of the choices that they decided to make. Uh, so I, I don't know if the, the film is putting forth the idea that, that uh, one's choices are, are the result of other people's influence, but that, that is one thing that, that struck me uh, that was brought up over and over. So I think ultimately, though, like I said, the film does come full circle and does highlight the importance of individual responsibility and, and making the choice as an individual to improve your own circumstances and to straighten out your life and, and get things back on track. Uh, so uh, there's a lot to discuss from a morality standpoint in this film, which which is... Uh, good to see. And, and, and like I said earlier, I think it really transcends any of these horror elements. So this really is a morality tale, domestic drama. Horror is really secondary here. And the horror isn't the supernatural. You, know, yeah. you would think in a movie like this, that's where the horror would come from. The horror is actually in the human. Uh, the yeah. supernatural, uh, I mean, death is not a figure here, unlike in, say, The Seventh Seal, where the actual uh, figure of death is a per, is personified, whereas the the charioteer, the the wagon driver, is just simply working for death. Uh, so we never actually really see death in this particular movie. But I do think that uh, the movie has a very uh, complex look at human society, and maybe that's part of it. You know, there is that question. You know, to what extent am I responsible for my own actions? To what extent? Am I a product of my environment? There is a mm -hmm. mixture going on there. I think you might be right, Matt, that it goes more towards, hey, we're the product of our environment, right? And we're, yeah. we're influenced by what is around us. But I don't know that it goes so far as to completely uh, deny free will or to deny the idea that we are responsible for our own actions as well. Uh, because... You see, I think, in the figure of Sister Edith, right, a person who is able to rise above. And she is – it's an interesting framing technique. I think in almost every shot, she's framed in the center. And the idea is that, at least as I take it, is this is a symbolization of her being the moral center of the film. She is the one that is – believes in David's possibility of redemption. She's the one that doesn't give up on him, right? Even though she's going to die from what he did, uh, from from his, his cleaning his jacket, right? And him, him this kind of gesture will, uh, kind gesture of hers will actually result in her own death. Uh, she's going to uh, still hold on to him, right? And she's going to believe in his potential for redemption. And her love, I think, is what moves him uh, to a conversion. So it, it, it does have this sense of, her being able to persevere, even though there's evil around her, she doesn't change, right? She remains pure. Uh, and so I think there's something of her that helps us to see maybe there's 
there is something within us that is good. And David is perhaps showing us the the opposite side, right? The side of the man who is is torn uh, and is maybe even likely to engage and indulge in his vices, but nonetheless has a, a movement that is fund- fundamentally good that can be overcome or that can overcome uh, the evil that exists within us. So I don't know. It's, it's a fascinating film. I think that's why it holds up well, because it has a timeless question, right? What is our relationship? What is our responsibility for our own life? Uh, and how does our will interact with the environment around us? It's, it's a fascinating question that stumps philosophers and theologians throughout the centuries. And we keep trying to find out and understand everything about it. So uh, turning our attention, maybe Matt. Oh, good. Oh, sorry. Yeah. They're definitely timeless themes. Uh, I guess one other uh, follow-up question I had, do you see, um, you know, Edith's character as really a, a, source of pure good or do you I mean the question comes up in terms of her meddling right so she sees that her choice to reunite David with with Anna she sees that as a sin when when she's faced with death because she feels that she has caused more destruction or caused David to sin more by bringing them together even though her intentions may have been good uh what do you think the film is saying about kind of meddling in other people's affairs or, or trying to bring about reconciliation, you know, in, in Edith's mind, again, it's, it's amplified, uh, you know, David's poor placement in the afterlife. If you want to look at, look at it that way, uh, do you feel that the film is saying anything there? I don't know if it has a fully articulated thought there, uh, but I do think that, I mean, that is the potential where you could say, well, maybe Edith isn't the perfect example of, of pure goodness because she meddles and makes things worse in a certain sense, uh, even though she may have had the, the best of intentions. But also, I wonder to what extent do you look at the ending of the film, right? David, what really motivates him even more than Sister Edith is knowing that his wife is planning to kill herself and her children, right? He, this is this vision he receives of what's going to happen. And he's begging for his uh, good friend, George, who had been his friend, who's now the charioteer. He's begging for him to intervene and just says, I can't, this is, I, I just have no, no say here. Uh, but this uh, ultimately reconciliation, uh, I think also is what really formed the family again. Uh, the family ultimately becomes a source of saving David. So in a sense, her meddling is what gets David to finally overcome his demons, right? To be reconciled to his family. And I, I guess maybe that leads us into, so obviously th- this film has a huge influence and has impacted a great many other movies uh, and filmmakers. Uh, we could talk about Ingmar Bergman, but I think before we get to him, I'd like to talk about The Shining because I think beyond just that one scene in which you have him chop, David chopping through the door and the family on the other side, uh, which clearly you can't help but think of, here's Johnny. But it's, I think, the whole structure of The Shining that Stanley Kubrick made is much more indebted to this movie than it actually is to the source novel by Stephen King. Uh, I don't know, did you pick up on any themes or any ideas or just motifs that connect this with the movie The Shining? Well, beyond just the obvious acts through the doors, as you've mentioned, um, 
I, I guess I didn't uh, think about it a whole lot. Uh, I guess I'd have to step back and kind of uh, consider the themes of, of The Shining in comparison to this. But the family dynamics, I think, is, is one thing that, that comes to mind now that you mention it. Uh, just the the fact that you know Jack Torrance in, in The Shining has kind of the perfect little family, right? He's got a uh, loving wife. He's got a, a, a son that seems to have a His lot of His son's creepy right from the get-go in The Shining. I mean, <laughs> that's just, let's get that out of the way. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say perfect. Shelley Duvall's his wife, and his son's a weirdo. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, perfect in the sense of a Stanley Kubrick film, let's say that. Huh? <laughs> there we go. There, I'll, I'll take that. Okay. Because <laughs> I look at the family dynamics of, say, you know, in A Clockwork Orange, and uh, Shining looks positively idyllic compared to that. So, uh, at least in the context of a Stanley Kubrick film, I think he's trying to depict uh, his his vision of the all-American family, whatever that may be. So, perfect may be the wrong adjective, but... Uh, Certainly, they seem happy uh, as they're driving. Well adjusted, yeah, yeah, well adjusted uh, as they're driving through the mountains there in the beginning. But uh, clearly, there's there's something off there, and, and I think that's that's the intent as well. Uh, but I mean, I mean, you could say that the family dynamics are, are um, similar themes between the two films, or um, especially the the degradation of the family and and how uh, how Jack's you know, slip into, uh, to mental illness or however you want to label it. And, and the shining, uh, impacts his family. So maybe that's one thing that comes to mind. Uh, but I get the sense you've thought about this more than I have. So, so what did you come up with? Well, there's a few things. There's obviously, yes, the one scene, the, the ax and the cutting through the door, that's very mm-hmm. noticeably evocative. If you've seen the shining, you're going to, Oh, you know, but, uh, I think, and yes, the family dynamic is there too. In terms of this is a good family, things seem to be going well, and then it starts to decay. Uh, and what I see is the, another common theme within that is they both make alcohol a part of the decay, right? The destruction of the family. Because it's when Jack uh, in The Shining says that he wants a drink, he'd sell his soul for a drink, that all of a sudden the bartender appears, the bar is full of booze. Right, and all of a sudden he starts to go down that road and becomes murderous. Right, so there's an element to which both of the these movies, I think, portray alcoholism as being uh, as a being an evil in in family life. Now, this isn't surprising in the Phantom Carriage because uh, not only Sjöström but also the original author of the novel, uh, Selma Lagerlöf, both had alcoholic fathers, and their hmm. family had become destitute because of it. Uh, they had been, I don't know if there's physical abuse or anything like that, but they obviously had been scarred by this uh, in their childhood. And so I see that maybe they weren't necessarily going for an overall prohibitionist agenda by anything, but I think they saw alcohol as having a, a devious impact on families. And I do think that's, at, uh, that's in Kubrick's movie. I do think he picks up on that theme as well, about how alcohol becomes a symbol of the decay of family. And I, I, I think that's what this movie has in common with The Shining. But where I do think it differs from it is that it ends with a note of hope. Uh, not that I would say that everything's resolved by any means at the end of this movie of The Phantom Carriage, but you get the sense that reconciled, his wife has become to trust in him. He is being humbled and seen his error, 
and will work with her to become a better man. Whereas The Shining, he freezes to death, and that's it. So <laughs> that, that would have been uh, an appropriate ending for a Swedish film, though. Uh, but <laughs> well, that's yeah, no, for a far. Swedish film, this is. This is a very positive, upbeat movie, <laughs> considering what you think of a Swedish film. Uh, so, uh, and I guess that's one question. I know some of the criticism of this movie is some people think the the ending doesn't hold up, that the ending is forced or the ending seems contrived, that it doesn't play out realistically with what we know of the characters. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the ending is fine. I mean, like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't tie everything into a neat little perfect bow. I mean, it's this is kind of like the first step, and and I'm left wondering as an audience member whether or not David is going to keep his word because we've seen him break it before in the film. So this really isn't a promise of success. It's just another attempt at reconciliation. We don't necessarily know if he's going to be successful. So it's not like we have a, a flash forward to him as an happy old grandpa uh, still with his wife or something that would have been laying out a bit thick or maybe too uh, Spielbergian. But here is, I, I think it's fine to end with, with a message of hope. I mean, uh, films at the time, I, I guess I would have been surprised if that didn't happen because I think audiences wanted that, that sense of satisfaction, especially uh, in the early days of cinema. Uh, you, want, you want the audience to leave happy uh, on the most part. So I, I didn't get the sense that, that uh, even though this is Sweden and and they can have some fairly dark themes in terms of their, uh, their entertainment, I didn't get the sense that this film needed that kind of a bleak ending. Yeah, it didn't bother me. I, you know, I, I, can, I can concede that it does seem a bit abrupt. I, I mean, there is kind of a quick. I turned around and you know, oh, you know, but they also s- set the stakes sufficiently high enough that I could believe that would propel him to want to be motivated to really go out and stop. You know, he he never, uh, you know, was seen I, as I said. I think as a fundamentally bad man in the film, so that he would want to save their lives makes sense to me, and that he would come to see from having the, these events portrayed to him in this state of suspension between the two worlds, uh, that he could come to a sort of reconciliation with how he had contributed to the misery of those around him and wished mm-hmm. to make an amends for it. I, I, I believed it. You know, again, is it is it a bit fast? Do we do we have it play out as as thoroughly or as completely as it could have to make it maybe a little more satisfying? Perhaps. But I don't think it's unbelievable. Uh, but where I guess I might have a little bit of a quibble with the with the material is that they never really set up a way in which he could undie and why it is that the Fred George, right, who is not death, right? We've, we've established he isn't death. He's just the man driving the wagon. So how does he have the power to bring him back to life? That part did seem contrived to me. That part did seem forced to me in order to make a resolution for the ending to come out happy um and so i I, there's nothing that explained how that could be so there there is a plot hole that that's a quibble that i I think uh you know you can't deny or pretend isn't there but uh it still is as considering the overall strengths of this film it's one that you can forgive yeah that did occur to me as well that 
all of a sudden he's alive, right? And I, I guess I didn't get the sense that uh, George willed him back to life or or uh, put his soul back in his body or anything. It, it wasn't well, that clear. Doesn't he give the command? Doesn't he like give a command saying like, you know, you return to your body? Doesn't he give a command like that? Uh, maybe he does. Maybe I'm just forgetting that. Um, so maybe it is more clear in the film uh, or more uh, direct. So, yeah, if that's the case, that, that's kind of a big problem, <laughs> especially after he made it clear that he doesn't really have any influence on on uh, things beyond the, the immaterial. But you could say that, well, maybe he, he's able to direct the the souls back into their bodies or, or something. But I, the way to get around that is to maybe almost explain it as like a near de- near death ex- you know, experience or, or show somebody resuscitating his body or helping him after he was struck by the bottle. Uh, but it, it's a plot hole. Hard to get around it. Right. I think some people have tried to come up with a theory that he never really – died that he was you know hit overhead and kind of had this is all a delusion but i oh. see no reason to think that because again when they go to sister Edith, she sees them right and yeah. so we have no reason to think that's all part of this dream how would he even know about all this i mean maybe somebody can tease out a theory there but i i i don't see any reason to think within the movie itself that they're taking this as anything other than what is actually happening in the story that he's actually has died and actually is in this particular place so yeah i I don't um, i don't see the film treating its entire main premise as a dream i i just think that there's a plot hole at the end and that's it's as simple as that honestly the plot hole would be less annoying to me than if it was all just a dream right yeah exactly writing trick in the world so it was all a dream so uh (laughs) that's what i expect a fourth grader to do not a Nobel prize winning author so yeah um well, uh, you know, going back just to the, the actual look of the film, uh, I also was struck by the production design. The sets, I think, are very rich, and they help really to establish mood. The living quarters for Vic, uh, for David and his family are really depressing, right? Uh, the bar mm. is depressing. It's depleted. But then the room in which Sister Edith is passing or when you see her at the mission uh, there's a certain liveliness to it. There's something beautiful uh, in the wallpaper, right? The the picturesque scenes on uh, the the in the background uh, when they go flashback to the picnic, right? Uh, just very very lovely. So the setting uh, of the of the different scenes, I think, is very much a part of why it is so successful as a story. It's not just in the cinematography, but I think it's also in the production design, which. Actually, Sjostrom and the original author, Lagerlof, they had a contention over this. She wanted it shot on location, and he insisted on doing it with this brand new little film studio called Svensk Film Industry that uh, had just started, and he wanted to shoot it on the sets. And I think this movie couldn't have been made this way without being done on sets. So I I love the set work in this. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it looks great. It's not overly stylized, which is nice. I mean, it does take No, it doesn't feel like sets. Yeah, it it takes a very realistic approach, but at the same time, like you said, the details are there and and the sets are dressed in such a way to reflect thematically what's going on, Um, especially the really kind of depressing 
apartment or closet or wherever Anna's living at the very end of the film with her, her children. Uh, so, uh, yeah, without the sets, they couldn't have done the meticulous lighting that we're seeing in this film. So uh, definitely the right choice to, to do that. And the, the the central concept of how do you illustrate these ghost figures couldn't have been done if you're shooting it on just a in uh, actual location, or you would have done it in a far less effective way, at least. Yeah, you need you definitely need that controlled environment. Right. Yeah, you just you have to. Right? I mean, even now they still need a lot of it. Right. It, with all mm-hmm. the advances that have been made, uh, they can account for some things on the actual location shoots but a lot of stuff has to be done in studio for those big special effects shots to this very day so in that day it would have been absolutely necessary essential for it to be done the other thing i noticed uh and i don't know if you picked up on a mat uh but the 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 direction even though it was a silent film seemed to have an awareness of sound to a little bit as well particularly i'm thinking about when the chariot first comes right the carriage is emerging and you have uh, the character of David hold cover up his ears. You know, the to give the sense that there's a sound, a horrible sound. Now, when we watch it with the scores being played, now they they play that up. They have a, some dissonant noise going on, uh, mm-hmm. so that it it bothers our eardrum. But it seemed like you know, as he was even making this movie, yes, knowing he was making a silent film, that there'd be live music accompanying it. That he had a sort of way in which. He was trying to use the images to direct the sound and the audience's appreciation of sound, which, again, shows just the the innovative nature of Sjöström as a director. Yeah, perhaps he was trying to give the composer or whatever individual would be accompanying the film <laughs> uh, some advice for, for the appropriate musical cue. Well, the final thing uh, that I was thinking of, of course, is that we have to talk about Ingmar Bergman. Uh, I guess, Matt, I don't know. We haven't really talked about Bergman's work that often. Uh, are you particularly fond of him, uh, or are you familiar with him that much? Yeah, I'm certainly familiar with him. I, I haven't seen uh, as many of his films as I would like. Uh, I, I'm kind of, well, kind of, I guess I, I'm kind of mixed on him. I, 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 What I have seen, I have liked, but um, he's not on my list of favorite directors at this point, but it's probably only because I just haven't seen enough of his work. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I've been working on that recently to try to fix that. Uh, but I can definitely see the, the influence that this film had over, over his films. I mean, the, of course the obvious, um, seventh seal comparison, but even just thematically, uh, there's, there's quite a bit here, uh, you could say there's quite a few religious themes in the Phantom Carriage. I mean, uh, the morality themes kind of transcend religion, but I can see why uh, Bergman was was influenced here. So Bergman, of course, I think is widely regarded, perhaps universally regarded, as the greatest director in Swedish cinema. Yeah, uh, Sjöström would be the one who would have t- had that title before him. So mm-hmm. it's obviously there's. And I think Bergman would have maybe even said Sjöström was the better director. You know, certainly he was a huge influence on him. And actually later in his career, Bergman did cast him in some films of his. So Wild Strawberries being the most famous example. Uh, and some people saying that's the greatest work of Bergman as well as uh, Sjöström's greatest performance. Uh, you know, I think that there's obviously is an influence, this film in particular, 
uh, clearly with the image of, of the figure driving the carriage, uh, then influencing how death is portrayed in the seventh seal. Uh, then there's just certain thematic points. But I also think it's it's different enough that it really shouldn't. And sometimes I think it's the fact that it influenced Bergman overshadows this movie uh, and its accomplishments because it really is its own thing. And yeah. Bergman didn't just pick up and just do the same thing over again. And uh, this movie has its own ideas and some things that are very different than Bergman. Uh, you're right that it's not so much of a religious piece. Bergman was very fascinated with religion and very interested mm-hmm. in it and exploring it both with a, spec, a perspective of, of skepticism as well as a perspective of faith and really try and grapple with those theological questions of life, whereas this one doesn't. I mean, it just seems to take it and just go with it. Uh, and so, but it's not explicitly Christian or anything. It's just you know, sort of takes the supernatural for granted and doesn't really question whether it's real or not. Um, so there are differences here that I think are, are worthwhile uh, in terms of trying to differentiate it from the rest of uh, Bergman's filmography. But there is obviously an influence. And for that reason, it's certainly, for anybody who wants to understand Bergman, I think it's important to watch this movie because it does explain, give a little bit of it, more insight into his work and to where he was coming from as a Swedish director uh, and just as a Swedish person uh, in the 20th century. I think there's probably a little bit of marketing involved here, kind of bringing in the Bergman connection uh, in terms of trying to sell this film. But I, I think it's a bit unju- unjust to kind of look at this as, oh, it's the film that inspired Bergman. Well, I, as you alluded to, I think it stands alone and and should be respected independent, independently of um, of any influence it may have had on Bergman. Well, looking at the release itself from Criterion, uh, I have a copy of the Blu-ray, and I think it's very nicely presented. It's a beautiful picture. Obviously, it, it does show its age. It's nearly 100 years old, and there are some some things that you're just not going to be able to take out, but it still looks very nice when you're watching it. Um, the two scores, there's two scores offered on the Blu-ray. The one that is by, oh, hang on, let me just take a quick peek here. Swedish composer Mati Bai is the first one, and then the other one is an experimental duo, KTL, that did that score. Uh, I sampled the second score, and I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't find it really meshed well with my viewing of the movie. Uh, but the first score, Mati Bai, I thought he had a pretty good uh, musical composition with it that worked well um, for it. Uh, Matt, did you watch this on Filmstruck? I did, yeah, and it, it has the the Matty Bai score. Um, I'm not sure if the other one's available on another audio track. I guess I didn't really check that. I think the audio commentary is on Filmstruck, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, it, it plays primarily with the uh, the Matty Bai score, which I liked a lot, actually. And it is actually available on um, Apple Music or uh, music streaming services, too, if anyone's interested in listening to the score on its own. Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful bit of music, and it works very well with the images. I think it's a very one of the better examples of a score being written for a silent film. Yeah, uh, we talked about this back with the Passion of Joan of Arc, but there's there's some great music being written for f- silent films by some some composers right now. 
Uh, and the commentary track, I listened to it. Uh, it's by film historian Kasper Tibjerg, who is a Danish uh, and uh, had um, an expertise in Swedish cinema. Uh, he has some very nice insights. It, it's a good listen. Uh, at times, I think he does get a little bogged down in just talking about not necessarily the movie itself, but you know, reading some excerpts from the original novel. So it, there's parts where it does drag a little bit there. But it is uh, still it gives you a good insight into the the making of the film and the impact that it had on cinema. So I would definitely recommend that for anybody who wants to listen to it. Uh, did you get a chance to look at the extras at all? Are there other extras on Filmstruck? Yeah, I think all the extras from the disc are actually on Filmstruck. So the the video essay by Peter Cowie on the Bergman connection, and and I think there's an interview with Bergman. Again, a lot of Bergman elements here <laughs> to, I think, try to sell the disc. And then I think there's a short feature on the, the building of the sets, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, which was kind of fun to see, actually, as I was watching that. It's only about like four minutes, and it's all silent film, of course. But just to see them actually doing all the work, and you just realize how how much labor went into building those sets. And not just there, but anywhere, right? When you built something back in those days, you didn't have all the wonders of our industry of today. So it was a quite a feat to build something back in those days. Uh, it was kind of cool to see. Uh, I'm glad they included that little bit there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd say the extras overall were decent. I mean, I like them, but they're, they're not obviously anything amazing. They're, they're just, you know, com- you know, I think maybe a little too heavy on the Bergman aspect uh, of things here. Not a, a lot of other insight into the movie itself or the history of Sjöström as a person or as an artist. But still, uh, some, some nice little b- bits of insight in them. And uh, with that, Matt, what would you say, does the Phantom Carriage belong in the Criterion Collection? I would say yes. I mean, I think it's a very important piece of, of Swedish cinema. It's arguably Sjöström's greatest film. And, you know, very influential, as we talked about. And it's always great to see new restorations of silent films and and I think Criterion has taken it upon themselves to uh, to get some of that out there it'd be nice to see more uh, I feel like silent film is kind of un- underrepresented in the collection but it seems like in recent years they've gone out of their way to uh, to rectify that so yeah it's it's a good release and 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 worthy of inclusion obviously I agree with you for the, all the things you said and I think in addition to those, it's it's great to see silent films being restored. I think the Criterion Collection, you know, part of their job is to restore is to present the fullness of cinema, and silent cinema is something that's very important and it's worth studying. And if it's not for the Criterion Collection, uh, people aren't going to find much of it. So I really think this is a great way just to help open up audiences to an understanding of silent cinema. So I definitely think it belongs there and uh, would definitely recommend anybody who wants to see a good movie uh, and a movie with a very modern sensibility from 1921, The Phantom Carriage. It's worth an evening of your time. And until next time, we're glad that you came and listened with us. Please join us for our next podcast as we will be discussing Wes Anderson's debut feature, Bottle Rocket, released on the first Friday in November. Thank you and have a good night.